Pastor Jake. Hey, Tim. Hey, um, it's almost November 2020. Uh, it is, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> People are going to be voting soon. Yeah, I've got a lot of different signs in my neighbor's yards. Yeah. Um, do you have any political opinions? I mean, is water wet? Yeah. I do. I have political opinions, too. Uh, do you think that everyone you pastor has the same political opinion as you? I don't think they do. They definitely do not have. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's really interesting because um, the more people I get to know their opinions in church, the more I see there's a wide array of opinions. Yeah. And then as you start to unlayer those opinions, there's opinions behind the opinions that have opinions. Absolutely. And yet, we love all these people. With all our heart. Completely. And so we want to be thinking as Crossroads Church about how to minister and how to build empathy for people that you don't agree with. Which is very hard to do sometimes. It certainly is, but I am convinced, uh, thinking about the stories that Jesus taught, that it is the way of Jesus to make friends out of enemies. I agree. And so we are doing this uh, podcast today talking about political opinions. We're not going to give any. Nope, not from us. We're not trying to tell you who you should vote for. Oh, gosh, no. We want to help you, and we want it to be helped as well, to think about how did we get to this divisive moment in our country that we're trying to be a Christian in? It's very difficult. If you are on any type of social media, and if you have an opinion... That opinion is going to get attacked, no matter what. Absolutely. And so we invited Dr. Peter Baker, a member of our congregation, to come and have a conversation. He is a political scientist from the University of Notre mm -hmm. Dame, has a PhD from that school, and he has taught Christians for the last decade in D.C. Wow, yeah. About how to engage their Christian faith alongside of their political opinions. And he has found that students come to him, both Republican and Democrat. Would you believe that? I think I, I would. Believe it or not, there are Republican Christians and Democratic Christians. And they have to, uh, as students, they had to live with one another. They had to learn to like one another. They had to learn to learn with each other. They had to learn how to dialogue with each other. And so uh, Peter is just a great resource to our church to really, really think about how to get to the bottom of being Christian, thinking Christian, living Christian in a polarized world. Mm -hmm. it, you uh, sat through the interview, listened to it. What, what, do you, what, Kate, what did you take away from it that you thought was really, really helpful uh, heading into this election in 2020? Yeah, one of the things that actually I appreciated is, one, uh, Peter's from the Midwest. I'm from the Midwest. Uh, he's Nazarene. I'm Nazarene. And so knowing that background kind of made me lean in just a little bit more. He actually went to our alma mater, Olivet's, a little shout out there. And um, I, uh, one of the big things I appreciated is he made mention that politics, the structuring of how do we govern ourselves, it's a good thing. Like, it's a good thing to be passionate about politics. Mm -hmm. It's a good thing to want to govern yourself. But it's when those good things kind of jump their boundaries that they can become idols. That when good things that are meant that we can be passionate about, excited about, jump their boundaries, their clear boundaries of what they're supposed to do and how they're supposed to serve, um, that they can become problems. And I appreciated that because in this time, 
you know, a lot of us vote in such of a way that it, you know, we are voting our faiths. A lot of Christians vote their faith. And sometimes that outcome can look different. And we look across the table and we wonder, why do you vote the way you do when we both worship Jesus Christ? And I think he gives some good tangible handles for how to, one, have perspective of why someone may vote differently, and two, how to keep politics where it belongs in its proper boundary. Absolutely. And he never does so ever with giving a hint of which side is right no, or which side is wrong, but really, really draws us back to Christ, which was my hope all along. And, and I'm so thankful that he helped us with that. This podcast that we're doing, this is the first episode, and we're so glad you're here. Um, this is just one podcast among many where we'll be talking with people around the church who are experts in different fields, helping us really think through how to, uh, how to parent, how to, uh, how to um, think about politics, how to have conversations, and how to live a Christ-centered life in the particular world with the particular challenges we have today. What I know as a pastor, Pastor Jake, is that people don't have the time to go to church as often as they did when I was a kid. Yep. We don't have people in the building three or four times a week near as much as it was when I was a kid. And so in this world where we have digital tools, we're wanting to use those digital tools to help our people become disciples of Christ and become Christ-centered. And so this podcast is just one of many things that we're pioneering in this season mm -hmm. to help people become more Christ-like and utilize the time and resources that they have in order to concentrate their faith in ways that help them grow in Christ. And so we hope that you enjoy this podcast over the next couple of episodes and seasons that we do. Next week, we're going to have one on parenting. I'm looking forward to that. And we'll see more and more uh, episodes come out that hopefully help you focus on Christ through life's crossroads. Welcome to our new podcast, Through Life's Crossroads, where as a church at Crossroads Church of the Nazarene, we're going to be attempting to work through and think about the issues that are uh, uh, existing, plaguing, overwhelming our society today. And we're going to try over and over and over to bring this back to a, a Christ-like perspective and try to do so in a way that helps us think and engage the world we live in. Today for our first episode, I have with me Dr. Peter Baker. Peter is a member of Crossroads Church of the Nazarene, and uh, I just want to welcome you in, Peter. Yeah, thank you. I really appreciate the invite. Well, I'm looking forward to hearing uh, from you today. Uh, we know that we are uh, living in a world heading towards an election where uh, politicians are saying this is the most important election of our lifetime. Uh, that's heavy, heavy language to hear, of yeah. course. And so could you just uh, tell our listeners uh, what it is that you, your expertise, where you come from, and uh, kind of set up uh, set up for us uh, what you bring to this conversation? Yeah, thank you. Well, thank you again for the invitation. Um, so my wife and family, we've been here at Crossroads for a couple of years. We've been in Maryland for five years and the metro DC area for 12 years. Um, I grew up in the Midwest in, in a Nazarene family. My mom grew up in the Nazarene church. My dad was a Nazarene pastor um, and uh, went to Olivet Nazarene University. And when I was there at in college, I kind of discovered with the help of a, a few really good professors um, 
kind of a calling to politics and thinking biblically about politics and and um, how our Christian responsibilities shape our understanding of good citizenship and good governance. And uh, part of that included spending a semester um, here in Washington, D.C. with other Christian college students, which is actually where I met my wife. Uh, and then I went on to uh, go to graduate school at the University of Notre Dame and wrote a dissertation studying post-communist transitions. And I, I was really not so much a policy wonk, but really interested in political order and political institutions and how political institutions rise and reform and sometimes fail. Um, so after getting a, a PhD in political science with kind of, again, an emphasis on post-communist transitions, spent a few years in Ukraine and a few years in South Africa, uh, moved back here to the D.C. area to become director of that same program uh, I participated in long ago as a college student. Uh, it's called the American Studies Program, uh, run by the Council for Christian Colleges and Universities. And so every semester we get anywhere between 20 to 25 college juniors and seniors from all over the country, um, all from uh, member institutions of the CCCU. And, uh, and they come to DC and they do internships. We also have a, a professional mentorship program where they're matched with Christian professionals in a particular uh, field of interest. And, uh, and we also deliver public policy classes and leadership and vocation courses. And so I have the privilege of running that program, being director and, uh, and teaching uh, many of those courses. And, and really at the end of the day, sort of our vision for our, our young emerging leaders that go through that program is how to build an understanding, um, and I guess I'd put it this way, how do we make sure that our identity in Christ shapes our sense of political responsibility so that our political identity does not shape our sense of Christian responsibility? It's so easy in today's world to get that um, the wrong way around. And, uh, and today, I think that's, I know we'll get into it a little bit, but uh, a lot of times I think our politics is shaping our sense of what it means to be a Christian, rather than allowing the freedom um, and, and power of the gospel to shape um, all of our, our identities, if you will, or our sense of self and our sense of responsibility to other, including um, in the area of politics. So I, I should add, unfortunately, the program has been suspended for coronavirus. So ASP is not operating uh, this, this year, um, which is a sadness, but which is also why I'm really grateful for the opportunity to revisit some of these conversations we have regularly with you today. That's great. And and uh, that work that you've done for all these years is so helpful for us in, in this moment today. And I appreciate you sharing that with our listeners. Um, I wanted to read to you from Galatians, uh, Galatians chapter three, just a text that kind of helps me think of this relationship to uh, the issue of law in place and also who we are in Christ. It says, uh, starting with verse 23, before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. 
There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. This sort of language is, is really the cry of my heart as a pastor as we lead into contentious political seasons that um, regardless of, uh, of what we think about the direction of the United States of America, that we would remember that people who are baptized in the faith um, are, are our, our primary brother and sister. And, uh, and I, I'm really interested in, in exploring how it is we can think about uh, putting our, our Christian life and walk and brother and sisterhood first above other allegiances that, that this world will call us to have. Right. And, and that's really difficult because these other allegiances want just that. They want our total allegiance. Um, and so what we often experience in real time are good things. Political parties are good things, um, but good things that overstep their proper boundaries and, and want to become idols in our life and, and somehow immune from the inspection of the gospel. And, um, and we're called to something different, aren't we? Um, as followers of Christ and as um, sort of models of his kingdom and, and his rule. And so, yeah, I think that's, that's a beautiful verse. And it's kind of a, a reminder that many of these identities that we hold so dear truly are important. I don't want to undermine the significance of these identities. But I think that one thing I take away from that scripture, it's certainly not the only thing. But just how many of our identities are temporary Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're kind of um, they belong to this world in this season in time, but there are other identities that are eternal, and and those temporary identities should always find their place and expression in these deeper eternal identities of what it means to be part of the family of God, um, for example. Absolutely. So I wonder. Um, I imagine that much of our audience would would testify that their uh, political beliefs are deeply tied to their uh, their their Christian convictions. And, right. and I certainly hope that that's the case. I think one of the things that is uh, really derailing the church in terms of our conversation, a sense of love for one another, is is this belief that um, our, our Christian convictions tie us to our politics. Therefore, our politics are right. And, right. and, and I, I certainly don't want to undermine that. Um, in, in fact, the few things make me more proud of our people than when they can articulate a connection to their theology, their beliefs, their convictions to the way that they <clears throat> vote. But we do live in a world uh, that is is super, super complex. And so I, I was wondering if we could talk just a little bit about, um, from your experience, especially you worked with young folks who came, I'm sure, Democrat, Republican, from the cities, from the country, all sorts of perspectives. You have to create the sense of unity within them to kind of listen and understand one another. In a world where um, our, our Christian values um, certainly connect with the way that we vote, I was wondering if you could help us think just a little bit about how it is that we can get over these tropes that we throw at each other, where um, you can't possibly be Christian and vote for dead babies, or you can't possibly be Christian and vote for Trump. Could you spell out for us just a little bit past those those tropes and, and help us understand maybe first 
um, how you see a, um, a, a, a Christian conviction that leads one to thinking in terms of Republican in 2020. And then we'll come back to how one could, could be Christian in value and lead them to vote Democrat in 2020. And again, I just want to be clear, we're doing this from, from an academic point of view with, with an academic, not in any kind of partisan way trying to convince you to go one way or another, but trying to build an empathy for a group of people that don't think the same way I do, but also go to church with me. Right, 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 right. Yeah, no, that's, that's so good. And yeah, just to echo that point, there's no punchline here where <laughs> we reveal at the end who we all should vote for. Um, you know, when our when my students come to DC, they're they're also puzzled because they come here with um, with this relationship with Christ, this genuine desire to follow Him, and a genuine desire that their Christian faith be relevant to their professional pursuits, mm-hmm. including professional pursuits in DC, um, whether it's in the legislative branch or executive branch or nonprofit life or or even business, whatever the case may be, um, and yet. They're like, how do we make sense exactly of of such division within the church on these issues and that deep animosity among Christians? Yeah. Um, and so we begin, we actually begin our studies with, in essence, a situation analysis. So before we dig into deep about, you know, what it means to be a Christian in the Democratic Party or what it means to be a Christian in the Republican Party, um, you know, we talk about all right, what is the situation in the political culture we're in so we understand what it is that we're up against, as well as so we understand the opportunity we have to model the kingdom of God and be the fragrance of Christ in the halls of power, wherever God may be calling us to. Um, and so we talk about a few things. We talk about pluralism. We talk about polarization. Uh, we talk about politicization. So at the risk of being a bit wonky, I'm still going to think it's, it's worth our time to spend a few minutes on these terms. Um, what makes 2020 different than 1970 or 1940? Um, and I, I would say this. First of all, uh, we live in a globalizing world where pluralism is sort of this growing um, fact of life. And by pluralism, we can mean a few different things. Um, Pluralism can mean a a variation, just sort of a variety of institutions. When we talk about pluralist life, we can say, well, we have, you know, an education sphere and a healthcare sphere and a political sphere and a for-profit business sphere and a recreation sphere. There are all these different types of institutions that make up my life. And these different institutions have their own cultures and purposes. And let's put it this way, their own ways of contributing to my welfare and the welfare of us as communities. So there's uh, what academics might call associational pluralism. There's also cultural pluralism. The truth is, when you look at different cultures, you see different ways of being a school, different ways of even being the Christian church, different expressions of what beauty looks like in our clothing, different expressions of what uh, tasty means in our food, um, all this kind of, so we see variation in cultures. And And so, and one way to think about this, right, is that um, there's no one way to be American right now. And like, maybe, maybe not so much was that the case for our great, great, great grandparents or something like that, or around the 1900s, there's kind of 
less ways to be American, less options. There are more options in which to chase the good life. Yes, I, I think so. So over time, the American experience has been, you know, immigration is just knit into the fabric of our national story. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the history of immigration, you'll see that there are different ways from different areas of the world. Everyone didn't come from everywhere all at once. So different areas of the world arrived at different times. And so over time, we've been exposed to greater and greater um, segments of the, of the global community, if you will. So yes, in that sense, our exposure to different cultures has increased over time. But here's the kicker. So th those are two things that we can celebrate. We can celebrate institutional diversity and in all the different ways in which our lives are rich and beautiful. Um, and the cultural diversity, just the way human beings, the way God has made us to be creative and how we engage his good creation and seek truth and beauty and express such things in all areas of life. Mm -hmm. But with it also comes moral pluralism. Um, out of these different cultures also come different religious views and systems and worldviews, different definitions of what truth, what is true, what is beautiful, what is permissible, what is not permissible, what is good, what is evil. All right, so the challenge that we have had over the last 50 years, thanks to globalization and these new emerging technologies and transportation and communication, uh, by globalization, we simply mean um, this increased travel or spread of people across borders, of goods across borders, and ideas across borders. The flow of people, the flow of goods through trade, the flow of ideas um, means we now have multiple cultures residing alongside one another within one political unit. Yeah in ways that we've never had before anywhere. And that's not just America, that's across the globe. It's happening in South Africa, it's happening in Europe. Um, and so how do you govern a territory when you have so many different communities with so with, um, with visions of the good life that don't always reconcile easily or don't reconcile at all? That, that's new territory for us as a, as a human race. Yeah. And, I remember and, how confused I was in the 90s by Phil Jackson <clears throat> coaching the Bulls and then the Lakers using Buddhist principles. And a <laughs> right, six foot eight white guy right. who's claiming to be a Buddhist and leading a basketball team with that. Like that's yes. That blew my mind. It, then. Right, right. And and so again, so that that's a beautiful example of the moral pluralism. And now we have multiple sources of religious authority to draw from as we try to make sense of our world and our place in it and our responsibility to one another. Right. And, and Phil Jackson must have been right because it worked. It, right. Like that's kind of how we evaluate this pudding. sort of thing. Sure. Right? Sure. Now, keep in mind, this is not just an American thing. This is a global challenge that all liberal democracies are facing because people flows and trade. And this is a global story now going on yeah. for 50 years. And America is a, uh, an export, like a leading export of culture to the far exactly. right. Like, it's not been, just we're being infected, but we're exporting. We've American. been promoting this. Yeah. Um, yeah. This trend vigorously. Um, okay. So here's the challenge. How do you govern? All right. Um, because we often, when we now, as we encounter 
um, neighbors with deep differences when it comes to moral visions for what the good life looks like and what community looks like, what it means to be man and woman, what it means to be a married couple, you know, just break it down into really everyday, what what it means to educate your children, what should we be studying, Um, how do we tell the story of American history, all these different visions we're not able to align. So um, that has led to, so moral pluralism, globalization, pluralism, moral pluralism has led to this other dynamic of politicization. The only way to win these arguments is to appeal to the state and have the state step in and use its coercive power to impose your vision on everyone else. Mm-hmm. Because we, we seem to have lost the ability to collaborate with one another um, across tables at community centers or PTA meetings or whatever the case may be. And so because I, I would almost put it this way, because we've been overwhelmed by um, moral pluralism, that uh, we are just left then with appeals to the state. And so now all of life has become politicized. Whenever we bump up against a different view or a different perspective on what is good, true, beautiful, permissible, or whatever, we, we need to appeal to the state, which then makes things like elections and political parties way more important than they've ever been mm-hmm. to almost like idolatry status now. Um, and with this politicization has led to polarization. And um, be, because we sense this difference and we sense like fear or um, anxiety that our, our vision is no longer could be lived out in our communities, um, we, we find less and less to agree on in the political parties kind of push us, and you've talked about this in your sermons really well, how uh, the political parties used to have quite a bit of overlap. They'd have their distinctives, especially on economic policy, but there was a lot of overlap, a lot of agreement in in other areas of of public policy, and we're just finding that to be less and less the case. And uh, Yeah, when I I was a child, I, I I see these graphs of multiple Republicans in Congress who were further left than the furthest right Democrats and vice versa. And right. there's a very clear gap now where there's there's no middle, there's there's left and right. There's no Democrats further right than any Republicans and no Republicans further left. Yeah. Yeah. And you also I remember you mentioned this in one of your sermons too. I think it was Sanford University that did this study was it like 30 years ago now? But um, they they do this survey and they ask people, you know, who would you want your child to marry or not marry? And 30 years ago, you know, we we were uncomfortable with our kids marrying outside of race or outside of religion. And today we have no problem with kids marrying outside of race or outside of religion. The number one is political party. We do not want our kids marrying into the other political party. So right there, that, that's just like a, another tangible expression of this politicization and polarization yeah. that now political party has become, this is how we perceive it. Yeah. And of course, we all want our kids to perpetuate our life and our beliefs. Right. right. Like that's right. That's that's good and healthy parenting. Right. Is that right. we have core common values in the family and we want that to carry on through generations. But what's what's telling is that it's it's no longer 
our religion. It's not our belief in Christ that we want. Like, right. like that that's a little bit more wishy-washy across the board than, than politics, which um, again, like it's pretty common or has been pretty common that if you are Republicans, you have Republican children. You like, this is often the case, right? That you're yeah. right. Yeah. But like, why is this more important is, is, uh, is troubling. It's troubling, not, not because it's not right and not okay, but it's an issue of weightedness in terms of what matters to us. Right. Yeah. I think there is a, a sense of lost national identity and unity. Right. And so when, when you work from a, a space, like we know what it means to be American and if we can all agree on these core principles, then we have the freedom to disagree on the how, mm-hmm. right? And yeah. so if we agree that, you know, we need to take care of the least of these, okay, then we can disagree with how much government should actually provide those services versus, let's say, making space for the private sector. So yeah. how much should we tax? How big should the social security safety net be? You know, we, we feel comfortable arguing about the how, because at a deeper level, we are all on the same page as to the what justice requires. Yeah, um, and you say that, and I like my my <clears throat> stomach starts to turn immediately because I can hear the arguments already. Yeah, and what's bothersome to me is our our inability to listen to an argument different than the one we have, right? right. Like this sort of like echo chamber idea that we we don't. We don't anymore, I don't think, start with the problem. We start with our ideology, right? Like, I'm going to protect Social Security and I'm going to protect um, uh, Catholic charities or whatever, right? And, like, we start from that sort of place of we already have our ducks in a row on how life should work. Yeah. Instead of starting with we should protect the least of these, which which I think I think is something that... I mean, I don't want to throw out numbers, 80%, 90% of Americans agree on, right? Like we want to be helpful right. to the people from the bottom of, of our social structures, our economics, right? Like most people can agree on that. And rather than having healthy debates on how to do that, we've already kind of aligned on our beliefs on what is and isn't working and or, or wouldn't work. And we can't even be sold on on a on a study anymore because we've already we've already decided what is right or wrong rather than having healthy debates to actually get somewhere. Right. And, and that's because, so this, this dynamic of politicization where now the state has become more important than ever in domestic affairs, because it's the only one that can solve these dilemmas or these debates, right. Um, Through law, through, through Supreme court judgments or through legislation. Um, This, the politics of polarization has taken over and the academics use this term affective polarization, which is this perspective that when you and I disagree, let's say on the social safety net is, is a big government response needed in this moment or a limited government, more private sector dominated response needed. Um, you, I might say, man, I disagree with you. You're wrong. You're ill-informed, whatever. But affective polarization goes beyond that and says, well, if you we disagree and you're evil, like you are morally inferior um, to the point where you may not. I don't even think you're one of us. Like you can't be American and take that position on this issue. I'm sorry. Um, And so that's kind of what because the stakes are perceived as so high. 
um, the political culture has ramped up into this affective polarization where we no longer disagree with one another, we dehumanize one mm-hmm. another. Um, because it's that's how we play to win, in essence. That's how we play to win in electoral politics. It's how we play to win um, in our in the way we govern. And in fact, we no longer really govern anymore because um, you can't govern with that kind of posture or approach, unfortunately. Yeah. So, and, and the last thing I'll just mention is, and the politics of uh, polarization um, lead to what the academics also call sort of this political psychology of resentment. Resentment is a, a French word, uh, mirrors resentment, uh, the English word. But uh, basically, the politics of resentment is this political psychology. My motivation for getting into politics is um, I'm motivated to political action based on a narrative of injury. Like I am being persecuted. I am being wronged. I, I am not being afforded dignity or respect. Um, and, and so I am part of a class that needs to be protected. And we see this on the right. We see it on the left. You see it in local school board You elections. see it in local school. <laughs> everything, yeah. everything, we motivate our, one another to action because you need to be afraid of this. Because if you're not afraid of this, if you're not informed and motivated to action, then you're going to pay the price right? And you're going to pay this price and these are going to be the negative ramifications and they are dire. And and the problem with this political psychology of resentment, where we're constantly talking about injury, um, when we're constantly talking about how we are the oppressed class is, then that gets actually worked into our identity, mm-hmm. right? To be who I am is to be oppressed, which then kind of lets us off the hook. If I'm constantly being oppressed, then I'm always in the right. Justice is always on my side. And so we don't have to be held accountable for not only what we want to do, but how we go about doing what we want to do in the public sector as citizens or as policy advocates. And and for that reason, not only is the narrative of injury, is this political psychology of resentment dangerous, um, because it malforms our sense of identity, but it it also we no longer have to feel responsible. Um, so that's uh, that's a long way. I know we spend a lot of time on that, but I think it's important for my students. I know it's critically important that yeah. they understand that's the political culture. Those are the waters that we're swimming in, and we Christians are. I mean, we're overwhelmed by those waters, right? And we are constantly being told, this is how we as Christians need to understand our citizenship, our place in the world, this time, and what it means to be responsible. And I think a lot of it um, is really unbiblical and not at all, let's put it this way, it's not how God sees our situation. Yeah, certainly. And it's 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 culture defining for us where we fit into culture rather than Christians. Right. And so we constantly need to be asking ourselves, all right, there's always nuggets of truth in every argument, right. no matter what political party you're a part of. There's always nuggets of truth 
in the situations that cause us anxiety or fear or whatever. But then how do we step back and let gospel shed a different light on that situation and define our responsibilities in a way that brings us freedom and uh, a sense of care and delight uh, for for neighbor and, and for God? So, Peter, in light of these things you've talked about, pluralism, polarization, politicization, resentment, um, the, these all really seem to me to spell out the situation that we're in. I'm tracking with you that these are this is the situation and, and even problematic for us. How do Christians respond to this? If, if this is our situation, how do we live into this season that we've been handed by our culture? Right. So <laughs> that is a, a, a really difficult question to unpack. When, I, when I'm working with students then at this point in the conversation, we kind of zoom out, right? If that's our situation analysis and we dig into those terms and and talk about um, the, the different examples of what that looks and feels like in real time, now we kind of zoom out and we try to take a God perspective on not only the situation, but who we are in our political identity. Let's go back to scripture and let God define for us who we are and, and our responsibilities to, to one another. And when we think about politics, um, you know, we look in scripture and we see plenty of evidence that government is ordained by God, that government has a good purpose in God's creation. It is um, what provides order and provides justice so that we as humans may flourish. And um, we can argue, the devil's always in the details, but um, scripture makes that clear. And we understand that our political identity then is not rooted in our national identity as Americans or not rooted in our identity as members of a particular political party. But uh, Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, verse 20, how we are, he calls us ambassadors of Christ. So how interesting for us when we sort of accept the invitation, God's gracious invitation to be reconciled to him and to be Jesus followers, that we in essence become ambassadors of a kingdom that's not in a different place, but more like a different time, a time to come, that we as the people of God uh, when we meet in church, the church almost acts as an embassy that models a type of rule that is coming. And it's almost like we as Christians living in America, we as Christians living in China, we as Christians living in Ukraine or South Africa have been given the privilege together to come and work with one another to figure out what it means to model a kingdom coming knowing that the kingdom uh, through God's grace can actually break in in fits and starts in the here and now. Kingdom come and coming. Um, and what a gracious gift it is when that happens, when God's shalom, when he blesses us, the fruit of our labor through our obedience. And so our political identity of ambassadors of Christ goes much deeper than these temporary identities. And that's another thing that we emphasize, I think, in our political studies, is that um, <clears throat> these political parties are temporary institutions. They, um, the Republican Party and Democratic Party did not exist as they, as they now do um, before the Civil War. 
um, who knows how much longer they'll exist in their current form. The, we know America didn't exist 300 years ago, right? These political organizations, the way we order ourselves within particular territories, um, the, those orderings come and go and change over time. They are so temporary. And, and for that, that should sort of, I think, instill in us a bit of humility. I certainly have incredible respect for those who have made the ultimate sacrifice on behalf of our country. Um, but I, I hope we can still retain a sense of, you know, um, the fact that being American is not an ultimate allegiance. And it has never, God has never meant that for me. Rather, to be an American citizen and to be a member of a political party is an opportunity to be an ambassador of Christ, to be the fragrance of Christ within those particular halls of power or rooms of influence and model a different way of exercising power, a different uh, and model a particular way of being good and pointing to the good of uh of defining what is beautiful uh, and and sort of doing what is just, and and we and that's why you know I get this question: Can you be a Christian and a Democrat? Can you be a Christian and a Republican uh, and and vote for Trump? And and I'll just say this: I believe God sends Christians into every corner of power so that He might be present and be witness to the lost. So absolutely, you can be a Christian and Democrat. I think God is fully, I think God in that sense loves the Democratic Party because he, he sends Jesus followers into it to bear witness to his truth and beauty and justice. Right. And like maybe even God sees the people, which we know from like John 3.16, like God so loved the cosmos, the world, right. the creation that he sent his one and only son. And so sometimes these structures that we create, that person is a Democrat, that person is a Republican, that person is a liberal, that person is conservative, isn't the lens by which God is seeing. This is a person who God created and loves <clears throat> and yearns to redeem. And I think it's interesting that you're describing to us this idea that um, we're not we're not called into a party to show how Christian we are, but we are called as Christians to enter into these spheres of influence in our world yeah. to demonstrate the reign and rule of God in the places that we find ourselves. That That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And so the vision that we're kind of living under is that God sees all of us, his people, as brothers and sisters who can, can come together on Sundays or maybe in small groups other days of the week, right, and talk about you know, as members of different parties, how are you doing? How can we pray for you? How can we support you? Because here's the thing. The biblical vision of justice is a rich vision, right? There's no simple definition of justice um, in Scripture. There's no theory of justice. There are only stories of justice. God, God says, you want to know what justice is? Let me tell you a story, right? And so Scripture is just full of um, visions of what doing justice looks like. And so we learn what justice is by doing it yeah. and, um, and often imperfectly, right? And so that's what we're called to do. I think God calls Christians into the Democratic Party so that those believers can speak to their Democratic Party counterparts and say, 
and affirm what is good and what is true and beautiful. This aligns with a biblical vision of script of justice. And I affirm that, but the democratic party, like any earthly, um, organization is imperfect and deeply flawed. And, um, and there are going to be things that don't align with biblical justice. And so is there someone there with a voice to sort of speak to that? And again, I, I love the sort of the sensory, uh, vision of the fragrance of Christ, like in a, in a winsome way, can we share how this vision of justice is good, but incomplete? And the same goes for the Republican Party, right? The Republican Party, so many nuggets of truth in terms of what justice looks like or what justice requires, but deeply flawed, certainly an incomplete vision of justice, which is why God sort of sends Christians into that party to bear witness to what is good and yet what still needs to be done. And we as believers come back together on the weekends to cheer one another on, to share our experiences, to ask how can we pray for one another as as you walk in your halls and we walk in our halls. And of course, that's a messy process. Of course, that's a bruising process because we're going to feel let down by our brothers and sisters. We're going to disagree on policy. Um, we are, we have our own limitations as fallen human beings. Um, and so that is, that is an imperfect process when it comes to the how, but when we keep our eyes on, when we ask this question, what delights our Lord and savior, Mm -hmm. like what brings God joy? I think it's what brings God joy is when his people make that good, sincere effort to work it out. Yeah under his terms, under his authority, not the authority of a political party or um, or an, an ethnic nationalism, which happens across the world. Yeah. Um, and so who who is your authority? Who's defining your sense of right and wrong and good and beautiful and just? Um, you know, we have to help one another not succumb to the idols, because if God's not doing it, our political parties will be very happy to, and they're constantly trying to. Yeah, yeah. I think it's interesting to have this conversation about 30, 35 miles north of where uh, Supreme Court justice is currently uh, laid in the U.S. Capitol, and um, and dignitaries are, are visiting this wake. And when I think of uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, I... I I personally, I immediately think of Antonin Scalia. Right, right. And um, one of the things that's given me hope as a citizen is uh, the deeply partisan divide between those two and how um, how rigidly they um, they attended to their work from their perspective, but, but also maintained just a deep friendship and respect for one another. And, uh, and my hope is that that isn't a throwback to yesteryear. They, they're both a lot older than I am. Um, they saw a different world than yeah. I did. But um, I, I, the two of them never um, never expected that they were going to see it their way. And they battled and they wrote. They wrote creatively about the perspectives with which they saw. And then at the end of the day, there was... The, the friendship overwhelmed. I mean, I've read, I read a story this week about uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg mm-hmm. mentioning while she was still in the circuit court in DC, how much she missed Scalia when he went to the Supreme court, like her work, <laughs> right, her work, which right. was the same work, 
was not the same for her without her friend in the halls with her. And, and eventually she was promoted to the Supreme Court as well. And they continued that like that healthy battle with one another for a vision of America, but but doing so really without without compromising what they thought was true, right? But also with respect. And man, I I, I I'm just really moved by those kind of relationships. Yeah. So this brings up, I think, a really fascinating point because so we're retelling those stories about this beautiful friendship now. But it, what's interesting is observing how these stories are being perceived through this new political psychology of resentment, mm-hmm. right? Um, and I think what we're seeing is, you know what? That friendship is the problem. It's the problem with political elites in America. And normally we would say, you know, no one, <clears throat> no one's going to challenge how firm Ruth Bader Ginsburg's convictions were um, to to her particular legal perspective or Scalia's perspective. No one's going to challenge that he held onto those um, firmly and argued for them as eloquently and carefully and persuasively as possible. And yet uh, in in today's environment, somehow that friendship is is perceived as evidence of not firm enough. Okay, because here here's the challenge we face. And I think this is where flags of should be waving. We're like, okay, idolatry might be setting in here. Right. What's the point of politics? If the point of politics is to win, to dominate um, the opposition to the point of excluding them from the club. Those friendships make no sense. They're actually betrayals. Right. So the idea that I would want to marry into a different party or be friends with people or empathize with people from the other side is a betrayal because it gets in the way of my objective, which is to win, which is to dominate. Mm -hmm. Okay, that does not ever align with scripture. What is the point of our work in the world as Christians? whether as a neighbor, as a business person, as a citizen, as a public policy analyst or a public policy maker, um, at the root, at the root of our calling is reconciliation, right? At the root of our calling is God looks at our world and sees a world that is lost in rebellion and through the life, death and resurrection of his son, he has made a way for reconciliation. And to be the ambassador of Christ is to model a way that wins people to that vision that they might accept that invitation and be reconciled to Jesus. And that is how we define success, is how how do we do justice in a way that makes possible reconciliation? So when we think about core values like freedom or equality or welfare or security, if we define those terms in ways that that obstruct the reconciliation of people, another way of putting this is if we understand freedom or equality in ways that creates division rather than harmony, that divides community or breaks community or creates individual atoms rather than bringing people together and helping people be whole, uh, that's just not aligned with the biblical vision of what it means to be responsible in public life. Absolutely. That makes me think, and, and we can wind down on this, that, that one of the struggles that I think is um, 
is really, really understandable is that when you're talking about, about government and participation in government and elections and all, you're talking about laws and, and laws happen all over scripture, right? I mean, not only because they're establishing a nation of people, but also there is a sense of, of righteousness in, in being gods and so uh, God's children. And so, so it's easy to start to transform for that law lawfulness onto our vision for America. And, and I, I certainly <clears throat> understand that, but let's not forget, right, that, that we're also called to a disposition in the midst of this conversation. Like just because we're fighting for what we think are kingdom values and laws, doesn't mean we get to throw out uh, the fruit of the spirit, right? Right. If we gain the whole world, but are never filled with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control in, in the outset, is it really God's kingdom that we're establishing, right? Right. So when, because God loves us, which includes, I think, not only a love for America, but a love for our political parties, because he then sends his people into those halls of power and rooms of influence to model a biblical vision of justice and mercy, um, steadfast, loving kindness, as the Bible puts it, um, yes, we would expect then that our work, our public policy formulations are the laws we write or the, um, the verdicts we give down would be informed by that biblical vision, but it can never be coercive, right? It always has to be within the bounds of um, uh, a level fair playing field because the moment sort of we, we seek to impose through coercion uh, a biblical vision of society is the moment that it becomes, uh, one scholar puts it, an unjust justice. And uh, I, I just think of Paul's, you know, the verse, you know, truth without love is what? Just this claiming symbol. This yeah. truth without love means nothing. You have spoiled it. So don't tell me about the perfect policies. Don't tell me about the, the most beautiful speeches or your Christian motivations for this or that. If, if you're going to sort of move into the legal sphere or public policy sphere so that you can coerce others through the winner-take-all, um, you know, electoral machinations, you know, that we're in today through using the politics of resentment to make your case, then honestly, I spit on your sacrifice. Mm-hmm. It's kind of what the Bible tells us right? This is not worship to me. This is not faithfulness to me because at its root is coercion. Um, So we're there to model sacrificially, knowing that, you know what, we, at the end of the day, we might not have any policy victories or legal victories to show for it, but that's not how God defines our success. Yeah. We're modeling a world that is to come where it's things coming. will be set right. Exactly. exactly. And we do what we can in the meantime to model this kingdom, hoping that it's a foretaste of the glory that is to come. That's exactly right. And that is that is a daily discipline to live in that truth. It is not easy because the world defines success differently, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Peter, for joining. This has been a healthy conversation. I hope it's been a helpful conversation uh, to our listeners as well as we think about ways in which we can be truly Christian in a season that is uh, is really, really difficult to be a faithful person in the midst of all of this turmoil. Thank you so much, Peter. For yeah, joining thank us. you. No, it's my pleasure.
Thank you for joining us for Through Life's Crossroads. This has been a ministry of Crossroads Church with Pastor Jake and Pastor Tim. We encourage you to continue to engage with us online throughout the week on Facebook at Crossroads Church of the Nazarene and also on Instagram, Crossroads Naz Church. Thanks for joining us for this episode.